Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 and go to verse 25. And we'll be reading from Luke 14, 25 to the end of the chapter, verse 35. And please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear now the living and abiding word of God. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let us go to our Lord in prayer now. Almighty God, we give thanks to you for every word of Scripture inspired by your Spirit given for our instruction. And we have come this night to hear from you. We have come to learn. We do want to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be those who count the cost. So I do pray that you would instruct us as we look at this passage now, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I think many of us are familiar with building projects that have gone on way too long, or at least in our opinion, they've gone on way too long. Maybe you're familiar with building projects that never get done. Somebody starts them, and it just stops, and it just sits there, and you're thinking, what a waste. What a waste of space. What a waste of time. What a waste of money. And the reason that projects don't get done within their original timeline or budget or perhaps don't get done at all is because somebody somewhere did not count the cost of that project. I'll give you just one example of this kind of thing happening and how much it can be a pain to people when such a thing takes place. For about 20 years in a town in New Jersey, a seaside town called Asbury Park, there was the skeleton, the steel skeleton of a 224 apartment high-rise that sat there, unfinished. It's massive, massive building. There's a massive uh, concrete foundation that the steel structure went upon, and it just sat there for a whole 20 years. They, they couldn't finish it, nobody would do anything with it. And people would walk by this thing for year after year. And over time, of course, as you can imagine, the, the salt from the sea would start to break down this, this structure and it rusted. It was extremely 
ugly. Uh, and this was supposed to be a nice tourist town, and you got this ugly, massive structure there. And it sat on the corner of 4th Avenue and Ocean Avenue for a very long time until 2006, when the entire skeleton of the building was demolished. They had to completely start over. And then, of course, in 2007, the real estate uh, bubble burst, and then it sat again for, I think, another 10 years or so until they eventually built something on the structure. So there's just a picture of what happens when somebody does not count the cost. And what our Lord Jesus gives us in this passage is a warning and a call to consider the cost of discipleship, lest we set out on that call to discipleship and then we give up. This is a solemn warning that we need to consider. Jesus often would give these kinds of instructions about discipleship. He would say, you need to count the cost. This is what it's going to cost you to follow me. This is what you're going to have to do. And he would do that to expose the hypocrites that would sometimes follow him, sometimes looking for the wrong things. We see many examples of this. We studied previously Luke chapter 9, the ending of Luke. There were a number of people that said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And one of the things Jesus said in Luke 9, verse 61, here's what we read. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. That seems like a nice gesture, don't you think? Like to say goodbye to your family before you go and you follow Jesus off to wherever he's going. Here's what Jesus said to that. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You're thinking, wow, that's pretty heavy. That's pretty serious. It's a pretty quick and intense demand that Jesus puts upon those who would follow him. And the reason Jesus would speak this way was to kick people off the fence, to press people for the reality of their confession and the reality of their commitment as to whether they would follow him. And that is what we have here in these parables and in the salt illustration uh, that our Lord gives us. So we're going to look at three aspects tonight in our passage. The first is that Jesus says we must hate our family and our own life to follow him. We need to figure out what that means. Secondly, Jesus reminds us that following him means carrying our own cross behind him. We're going to take our cross and go wherever he goes if we're going to be his disciples. And then third, Jesus gives us these two uh, parables and the illustration, or maybe you could call them all parables if you want, uh, to get us to consider what it means to count the cost. That we, before we set out to be disciples of Christ, really consider what it's going to cost us. So let's begin with the first topic, that we are told that we must hate our family and our own lives to follow Jesus. Verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. I want to begin with verse 25 before we even get to the statement about hating family. First you notice how this story, how this section of the narrative is framed. It says great multitudes went with him. So you have all these people following Jesus, and at that point, Jesus turns around and says these words to them. Why does he do that? Well, this was a moment of popularity for Jesus. Jesus did have times in his ministry where he was extremely popular. Many people followed him. Many hung on his words, and many were looking for things from him. 
There was a significant draw for Jesus' ministry when you can feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. That is very attractive. You want bread, right? You follow Jesus. That guy knows how to make bread. So people would follow him for that reason. People were healed. People had been raised from the dead. That is certainly worth following Jesus if you are dealing with some sort of physical malady. You can see why people were so attracted to him. But then there's times where, like in John 6, after he has some very hard words, the whole crowd disperses. They're gone. And all that's left is his disciples. And he says, are you going to leave too? And he says, well, you alone have the words of eternal life. But what we see from this is that there are times in Jesus' ministry where there's crowds following him. There's a movement. It's, it's popular to follow Jesus in this way. And there are indeed times where it's popular to be a Christian, or we might say popular to follow various movements within Christianity. And sometimes, though, people are just like the crowds. They're just looking for bread. They haven't really set their, their eyes upon the bread of life. They just want bread. And we have seen over the years and centuries that sometimes whole movements crop up uh, within Christendom, and they become very popular. And, and hordes of people follow after these movements because they are excited about what it will offer them. And certainly we can pick on something like the prosperity gospel, which is a good example of this movement. And I appreciated our brother Bill's comments on redeeming that term, but I'm going to speak to the one that we're familiar with. This prosperity gospel that really is all about bread, or money as the case may be, and not really looking to Christ and what he offers to us in the gospel. Now we can pick on the prosperity gospel, that would be easy, but let's think about even movements that come a little bit closer to home. Uh, we've seen this before. We've seen these uh, big, exciting movements crop up even within the context of uh, Reformed uh, churches and Reformed Christianity, and it becomes about a movement, it becomes about a name, it becomes about an idea, and then what happens, of course, eventually the movement loses steam, or there's a scandal, and then suddenly the people that were following the movement most intensively are now blogging against it very vehemently uh, five to ten years later, and we think, well, what happened? I don't think that they were following Jesus in all of that. Because Jesus' followers keep following him through thick and thin. They're not there for the bread. They're not there for the excitement. They're not there for carnal things. They are there to follow Christ in his call. And so this is what Jesus, I think, is pressing upon the crowds. They're all after him, but he wants them to understand that following him doesn't just mean following him around to get stuff from him. It means following him in the way of suffering. It means following in the way of self-denial. And that's where these parables come in and this call comes in. So let's consider the statement of verse 26 where he says, If anyone comes, after, comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and then he throws in, and your own life also, you cannot be my disciple, he says. And this can be shocking to us, which I think is the point. It's, it's supposed to shock us. Jesus' words are often have a valuable shock factor to get us to think about this. What does our Lord Jesus mean when he says we must hate our closest family? Now we know that our Lord Jesus is not putting, him, putting himself in contradiction with other things he said in his ministry. For example, we know that in Matthew 15... 
our Lord Jesus very much respected the fifth commandment as the law of God. And he talked about how you need to honor your father and mother. And he was so, uh, perhaps the word frustrated would be the right word, he was frustrated with the Pharisees and how they overthrew the the commandments of God for their traditions and how it meant that somebody was making an excuse for not honoring their father and their mother. So we know that our Lord Jesus cared deeply about these commandments and we know our Lord loved his family. We know that he loved his mother. John 19, he cares about his mother as he's there on the cross. We know that he had a concern for his brothers and sisters and we believe that eventually James, his brother, became a follower So we know that what our Lord is saying is not set in contradiction with those other things that we know. We know that this is speaking to the prioritization that we must have when it comes to following our Lord Jesus Christ. And I appreciated what Thomas Boston said. He summarized it this way. No man can be a true disciple of Christ to whom Christ is not dearer than what is dearest to him in the world. He's saying that if you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus has to be the most dear person to you in the world. Everything else has to fall to the wayside. And if anything gets in the way, it certainly must be left behind. To hate our family and to hate our life is to love the Lord Jesus Christ above all other things. And when self gets in the way, we reject it. When family gets in the way, we say no, we reject them to the degree that they get in the way of our commitment to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you have had the benefit of growing up in a Christian home. I I did have that benefit. I know some of you did not have that benefit, that blessing. And for those that did not grow up in a Christian home, you might be more familiar with this tension, with this conflict, the reality of the difficulty that this presents This conflict where one is against five or two against three, you know, where there's two Christians that come out of a family and then three that hate the faith. It's a difficult conflict. We've talked previously about Christians and Muslim-majority countries. What is it like for for a Muslim woman in a Muslim-majority country to embrace the gospel? Just her, imagine that. Just one woman in a family, in a Muslim-majority country, she doesn't know any other Christians. She comes into contact with the Bible, she reads it, she believes in the gospel. What does it cost her to follow Jesus? It'll cost her certainly very significant persecution, but it might cost her her life. She really might carry her cross to the death. And, And this is the kinds of questions that such converts would face. They'd face the question of, should I be baptized in secret, lest I be violently attacked by my relatives? Who should I tell about my faith in Christ? Should I testify at all? I might get killed. How can I, can I tell anyone? Is it a sin not to say anything about Christ? But what if I lose my life immediately? Then I definitely can't share my faith. These are hard questions, aren't they? They're questions that we're not very familiar with. And so when we come to a passage like this, we need to understand the real conflicts that people face with these kinds of questions. And and while we may not face that particular question personally at this point, we do indeed face the question of, will I love the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him with all my heart no matter what the cost? We face that all the time, that question. And so Jesus then goes to verse 27. He says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Our Lord wanted 
his disciples, he wanted us to understand that the way of following him is going to involve ourselves in the way of difficulty. Now remember that the imagery of the cross had not been sanitized in the least for these original listeners. We, we have so many crosses in so many places, we have them around our necks, we are so familiar with this sanitized symbol. But for them, they really did think first about people hanging and dying gruesome, terrible deaths. That's what they were familiar with. Some of them probably had seen it with their own eyes. It was a terrible thing to see. And so this imagery then was very serious, very stark imagery to provide as he pressed them on their commitment. And sometimes the terminology of of the cross has also been, I think, diminished in some ways. And and what I mean is sometimes people will have this English phrase, they'll say, this is my cross to bear. And while indeed we may have aspects of suffering that God has providentially ordained in our lives, what I want us to grasp is that this really had in view originally suffering for the name of Christ. This was not just about suffering in general. This was suffering because you're associated with Jesus. And, of course, it did literally mean for some that they might be crucified, as we believe the Apostle Peter eventually was. And so we need to take it in that way. And Jesus was saying, if you're going to be my follower, you are going to follow me into perhaps the most, the scariest thing you've ever seen and the most difficult thing you've ever seen and you might not make it through. It's basically what is involved in the possibility of this phrase, phraseology. And how did that go for Jesus' disciples when that call came in the Garden of Gethsemane? It didn't go well. They fled. They all abandoned him. They were all fearful. They, they had heard these things, but when the moment of testing came, they completely chickened out and left Jesus. And so Peter, of course, confronted by the servant girl and others, denies Jesus, goes so far as to use an oath. He breaks the third commandment to say, I don't know this man Jesus. And this is a picture, of course, of what can happen for any of us fallen sinners when we come into difficult and fearful situations. We might be tempted to deny our Lord. Thankfully, there's forgiveness for fearful disciples like Peter and like us. And so this was indeed the call that that Jesus issued, this call to suffering. And I'm I'm thankful that the Lockmans have been uh, bringing before us Hebrews chapter 13 every week with these different prayer cards. It's been a very beneficial thing, I think, for us to really keep applying Hebrews 13. And as we do that, let us, let us seek to enter into what we're hearing and reading about. And may it form in us a better understanding of the Christian life. May we not be surprised by the call to suffer for the name of Christ. May we not be surprised by... Uh, the difficulty that may come when we're associated with the name of Jesus Christ. And I would ask each of us tonight, are you associated with the name of Christ joyfully, willingly, openly? Or do you hide that association? Do you not want certain people to know that association? That's what Jesus was pressing us. Are you going to be associated with me in the way of the cross? If we will not be nailed to an actual cross, if we will not actually be flogged, 
we may indeed face reproach for the name of Christ, and may we embrace it. May we say as the apostles, after they had been reproached for the name of Christ, they counted it joy uh, that they were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. So now we go to the parables. Jesus gives us these, these valuable pictures for us so that we really do count the cost. We have the first parable concerning the building of a tower, verse 28 through 30. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Now what Jesus is saying is that wise builders do something before they begin building. They sit down, they consider the scope of the project, and they figure out what is it really going to cost. What is it going to take to get from nothing, this tower having not been built at all, to a full tower? It is not wise, Jesus says, to start the project and then 50% way through, then sit down and count okay, what, what do we still need to finish this project? You might find out that you don't have the resources. It's, you're not going to make it. Going back to the failed apartment high-rise in New Jersey, here was a situation where the failure to really count the cost had a catastrophic result. I mean, there was a lot of money invested in that giant concrete pad and the steel that went up. All the money that was invested was completely wasted. It was gone. And Jesus is saying, do not begin the Christian life with the wrong estimation of the cost. If you have the wrong perspective, as you go into the Christian life, you might get 10 years in and abandon the whole thing. Because you didn't, you didn't count the cost as to what it was going to take. Some be, people do begin the Christian life, they look for the wrong things, they believe in the wrong Jesus, or believe in other wrong doctrines, or they don't, count the cost of the challenges they will face in terms of embracing this profession. They will face significant difficulty. And the parable of the sower gives us this picture. It says that when persecution arose, some of those fell away. They, they didn't take root. There was not a good ground and good soil. And so let me ask you tonight, have you professed the name of Jesus Christ? Have you been baptized? Are you a member of this church or another church? Now, what do those things mean for you? If you've professed the name of Christ, you've been baptized, you're a member of his people, what do those life commitments mean for you? Do they influence your life? Do they direct your life? Would somebody on the outside be able to say, that's a real thing for him or her? That matters. That, prof that profession that they make, that commitment, that association, it's a real thing. I've seen it. That's, would people be able to say that about you? Now remember that the apostasy rate in American Christianity is higher than it has ever been in all of history. That means that our land is filled with unfinished towers. They're everywhere. People that began these tower projects and they make it 10%, 50%, 70%, and then they abandon it. It's all over the place. You'll have story upon story of towers that began and then towers that did not finish. This is what has happened to the Christian profession of many. And what is, what is the effect, Jesus says in the parable? Mockery. People mock it. 
the tower that was not finished. And people can indeed mock those who profess the name of Christ and then make a, a reproach of that name by rejecting it and calling it, uh, trotting it, uh, treading it underfoot. Now let's look at the second parable, verse 31 through 33. Or what king, Jesus says, going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now notice the, the contrast between these two parables. They're very different uh, parables in terms of the imagery that's used, but they make the same point. So we have to figure out what the point of connection is. Notice that the consequences in the second parable are potentially much more catastrophic than the first one. In the first parable, not finishing the tower leads to mockery. In the second parable, theoretically, if the king who had 10,000 did not consider what to do with the 20,000 that were coming against him, that king and all of his 10,000 might have been dead wiped out. This failure to count the cost in battle could have led to the death of the entire army. If you have an army of 20,000 coming against your army of 10,000 and you don't plan, you just say, I hope it works out. That's not a good idea. That's that's pretty poor strategy, isn't it? And, and he says in the parable, one of the options would be you just you send delegations for peace. You realize, and it's not going to work out. We're not going to be able to beat the 20,000. So let's, let's send the white flag out there and see if we can get conditions of peace because you don't want your army slaughtered. Now, Philip Ryken, in his commentary, he points out that this parable not only gets to, to consider the cost of discipleship, but it also helps us consider the cost of what he calls non-discipleship meaning not doing anything, uh, facing the battle, and then getting killed in the process. There are consequences to not counting the cost, not just that you don't finish, like in the case of the tower, but that you face eternal judgment. That's one of the costs. That's one of the consequences of not counting the cost. In verse 33, he he brings the two parables together. He, He gives us the point. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That was the point, that that the commitment was, in the case of the tower, in the case of the story of the king, considering all these things, that counting the costs means that you've realized that you have to forsake everything for Jesus. And so let's return to the original setting that Luke gave us. The crowds are following after Jesus, but... Was everyone in that crowd a committed disciple? Had everyone in that crowd realized what it was going to cost them if they kept following Jesus? Jesus is asking us, if you have confessed me to be Lord and Savior, you have committed yourself to following after me, are you ready for what you will meet with in the way? Do you realize how extensive the tower project will be? Have you taken into account the battles that you will face in the Christian life? Have you soberly considered what it means to follow Jesus? And what will it cost us? It will cost you every self-oriented fiber in your being. It means death to self and new life in Christ by following him wherever he tells you to go. It means saying no to your sin, 
at every point and saying yes to the commands of Christ at every point. It means shame, mocking, slander, potentially physical persecution to be associated with the suffering Jesus Christ. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, as he famously put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. How's that for an invitation to a discipleship project? Die. Now I would ask you tonight, brothers and sisters, does your life evidence this kind of discipleship? Could, could you be distinguished from the crowd that follows Jesus for bread versus the disciple that follows him to the way of the cross? Those are two different things. And so we must soberly count the cost if we would be called Christians truly. If we would bear that name Christian in sincerity, we must count the cost. Now Jesus gives us one more illustration to consider, which again is all part of the same point, I believe, although he doesn't exactly explain it here. He gives us the picture of salt, verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now we know that Jesus elsewhere says, you are the salt of the earth. We, we know that that's a language that speaks about our preserving and influencing effect, that real salt tastes like real salt. And it really preserves things. It actually has the effect that pure salt should have. Now what Jesus is saying is, as he speaks to all these people following him, is, are you pure salt? Are you the real thing? And the reason that he talks about salt losing its flavor is because the way in which they would often get salt in the the region of Palestine and, and Israel and in the days of Christ was especially derived from the Dead Sea. We know that the Dead Sea was a very valuable source of salt. But what you would pull out of the Dead Sea was not pure salt. It was usually mixed with a bunch of other minerals. And if you wanted the salt, you'd have to you'd have to glean it out of all of that other mixtures of minerals. And so sometimes you could get a big chunk and you'd have you'd have salt, sodium chloride, but you'd also have carnalite and gypsum and other minerals that would all be mixed in. And depending on the percentages of all those things, you may not really have salt that's any, of any value at all. It might be like you have 5% sodium chloride, but 95% all these other minerals that are useless. Now, pure sodium chloride salt does not lose its taste. It's a very stable substance. But if you have it mixed with all these other things... It's useful for nothing. It's just this useless mineral, at least in the context of taste and preservation. And you just have to throw it out. It says it's not even useful for the dunghill. You just get it as far away as possible. And that's, I think, what Jesus is saying when he talks about salt losing its flavor. And so let's connect that to this call to discipleship that Jesus is giving us and counting the cost. He's saying that you have to actually meet the conditions of of discipleship to be a real disciple. Otherwise, you're just this mixture of minerals that isn't really salt. If the disciples of Christ are to be the salt of the earth, then they cannot be these hypocrites, these mixtures of all these different minerals where there's not really a consistent 99% pure salt that actually has that effect. And so if you look at all these parables, you look at the salt illustration, the presentation for this, the purpose of all of this is to get us to consider our commitment to this call to discipleship. The possibility of apostasy 
for professing disciples of Christ is indeed a, a reality. We see it all the time. Of course, we believe that true disciples, those given new life by the Holy Spirit of God, will persevere. We have good reason biblically to believe that. But not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of the Father, Jesus says. And so we've seen a many warnings. If you think back, brothers and sisters, about chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, with whatever the messages that you've heard from these chapters, there's so many ways in which our Lord is exposing hypocrisy. He's pressing upon us for the reality. He's kicking the tires, as we say, to see the reality that sits behind this Christian profession. And so my prayer for us tonight is that we've heard the various warnings, we've heard the tests that our Lord has given us, that we would be those who have ears to hear. And so Jesus often ends these kinds of challenging statements with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the point is, listen up, pay attention, consider what this means for you. Really examine yourself in light of the warnings our Lord Jesus Christ gives us. May it be that every single one of us in this room count the cost, that we figure out what that tower is going to take, that we figure out what needs to happen in that battle against 20,000, and that we are indeed those who are very salty because of the work of the Spirit of God within us and the work of Christ as well. So let us pray to that end. Our God and Father, we ask that you would teach us to count the cost of following Jesus. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would grant us tonight the ears to hear with real spiritual understanding these words from our Lord. I do pray that that none of us would come short of the grace of God, that none of us would hear these things week after week and not follow Jesus, but that indeed we would be those who commit ourselves to this costly discipleship. And that no matter what challenges we face, that we would follow Jesus to the very end. And we're thankful for the promises that when you begin a good work in us, you will bring it to completion. And so we we live in light of those promises, we commit ourselves to them, and we ask that you would teach us to be true disciples this night. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.